0: This is Backstory with us, the American History Guys. I'm Peter Onof, your 18th century guy. I'm
1: Ed Ehrers, your 19th century guy. And I'm Brian Ballow, 20th century history guy.
2: This problem is bigger than the individual states, it's a grave national problem and it touches all our lives. With a problem so clear-cut and the proven solution at hand, we have no misgiving about this judicious use of federal power.
1: That was President Reagan back in July of 84. That grave national problem he was talking about? Budget deficit? Nuclear weapons? Guess again. He was talking about drinking and driving. The clip is from the signing of the National Minimum Drinking Age Act, which
3: effectively raised the drinking age to 21. Fast forward 24 years. the drinking age
1: is again in the news.
4: Welcome back. It's College Week on American Morning. And today we're taking a look at a serious issue on campuses, underage drinking. Does The
1: drinking age go from 21 to 18. Mothers Against Drunk Driving joined with other groups in Washington, D.C. yesterday to keep the drinking age at 21. They say the law has prevented... More than 100 college and university presidents have come out this year in favor of revisiting the drinking age. They say binge drinking is a major problem on campus, despite the age limit, and that decriminalizing underage drinking may be the first step towards controlling it.
0: Now, we history guys are going to remain agnostic on that one, especially considering that Ed here is a university president when he's not being one of our history guys, but we did think we had something to add to the discussion, a little history. Each week on Backstory, we
1: pluck a topic from the headlines and spend an hour exploring its history. This week, our topic is alcohol. How have Americans treated drink in the past? Why did temperance become fashionable, and when did the government get involved in all of this? And I got a question for you, Peter. Why is there a beer named after one of our founding fathers?
0: Well, Brian, before we get to Sam Adams, I want to go back even earlier, all the way back to 1587, to the first ill-fated attempt at English settlement off the coast of Virginia, There's a guy named Ian Gately who's written a new book about the history of drinking, and he told me that part of the attraction of America for those settlers was that they'd be able to live a healthy life there, free from the boozy temptations of London. Well, that didn't work out too well.
5: A Spanish spy went up to have a look, and his report said, you know, that they're all sickly because they have to drink water, which is quite contrary to the English spirit. (laughs) And, you know, the administrators looked at it, and they said it was an inexcusable error.
0: Plant the colony by water drinkers.
1: <laughs> so he's saying that if these guys had just kept drinking liquor, they wouldn't have all died off.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the obvious explanation for this is that water was dirty. It was the source of the disease. People died because they drank it, particularly in Virginia, where it was brackish water. It was much more sensible to go to New England, where there's a lot of clean, good water. But keep in mind, they drank a lot in New England, too. This is a period in American history when people drink. Oh, 10 to 15 times as much per capita. So you're saying they're a bunch of drunks, Peter. Well, yeah, yeah, they drank a lot. John Adams, every morning he wakes up, and the first thing he does to clear the old cobwebs is uh, he pours himself a big glass of hard cider.
1: So, Peter, if even the founding fathers were drunks, when did this all become sinful and immoral? How did that happen?
0: Americans did become concerned in the Enlightenment revolutionary period, worried about the future of the republic, which depended on responsible good citizens. And since so many Americans were drunk at that time, working people, that became a challenge for not only republican citizenship, but labor discipline and control There was a general feeling that if things were going to improve in America, and the whole point of America was improvement, then we had to stop drinking so much. And this is the beginnings of the temperance movement. But it's a slippery slope. If a lot of it's bad, isn't a little bit of it bad too?
1: Yeah, but I bet a a lot of it was needed to get people to go fight in the Civil War. Am I wrong, Ed? Uh, Alcohol was a big
3: help in getting people to fight for the Civil War.
1: It's illegal to ship
3: alcohol to your loved ones, but you'll find letters and people sort of say, look in the pocket of your uh-huh. pants. Sender, that I sent you. And they know that it can be a great comfort on, you know, an incredibly lonely time when you're sitting there in some camp throughout the winter waiting to die in the spring. But temperance people come talk to these people who are also looking for solace. So it's a supercharged environment for alcohol consumption and alcohol yeah, no, that's restriction. Yeah,
1: Well, Ed, you know, those temperance folks didn't go away after the uh, Civil War. In fact, they picked up steam. And a little while ago, Peter and I sat down with Jim Marone, a political scientist up at Brown University. He's written about the politics of sin. And one of the things he told us was that the key players in the second half of the 19th century were women on this issue, specifically the Women's Christian Temperance Union.
5: It starts out pretty mildly. In uh, 1873, a bunch of women at a small town in Ohio, Washington Courthouse, a town of 2,000 people, and as far as I can tell, about 20 saloons. The women knelt outside the saloons, hoping that the saloon keepers would, uh, would see the light. And indeed, many of them see. And these women sitting there, uh, singing hymns and praying, <laughs> they began to shut down the saloons. And that, that caused a ripple through the national consciousness.
1: So is this one of the first instances of participatory democracy of saloons? Yes.
5: And it is a very interesting instance of participatory democracy because it's organized by women.
0: Maybe you could explain why exactly women would be so upset about this uh, issue. What's the women's stake in this? Now, I've got two answers
5: to that. One is that some people believe, and in some places it clearly was true, that drinking was a problem. Mm -hmm. So this was a way to protect the home uh, from men who would, Get drunk and squander family wages. I think the other part of it is, remember what else is happening in the society. This is becoming an era of very high immigration. Immigrants drank. And this was a way of good, another way. There are many ways in American history. We know, we can see it today. But this was a fantastic way for people to raise themselves up above these very dubious immigrants from questionable places with poor values. This was a way of saying American values are truly special. We really are a city on a hill, and we can organize ourselves around these things that that really make us good and distinguish those people in the cities.
0: So, Jim, you've talked about ethnicity as a divide that can emerge in Debates about drinking. How about race? How does, uh, how does race figure in, in the temperance movement?
5: Race is the other really big one, and I think it's the most overlooked piece of this, and it takes place in the South. The great metaphor, the great trope at the turn of the century is, of course, the rape narrative. The black men rape white women, and that's why Jim Crow has to go into effect to control this group. That's not ready for the kinds of freedoms that America affords males. Now, there was a basic problem with this, that the black people, m- most people knew, didn't play the part of this rapacious, fearsome black male that's such an important part of the stereotype. And the missing piece was liquor. If you read the literature coming out of the 19th century, late 19th Very century, South, yeah. Over and over again, you see there is descriptions that black man drinks alcohol and that makes him a fiend. In fact, there was a lot of talk about outlawing pictures of women on alcohol bottles because it was said that the black man would see the white woman on the, her picture and would go rape the nearest white woman. It was said that why was there so much lynching in the South in the 1890s? alcohol. So there was this great argument that black men under the influence of alcohol, see they, they weren't like the black guys you knew right. who were really quite different. they weren't worried about the
1: lynch mob being liquored up. W- well, they, <laughs> they were, were. worried about the black man being liquored up.
5: Very much. Very, very much. But um, two things to say about this. One is the truth about black people is that they're the swing vote in temperance votes insofar sure. as black men are still voting. And remember, they're still voting until 1896 in large numbers. Mm-hmm. They Divide into people who say, don't be ridiculous, we like to drink, and the church-based prohibitionists among the black vote. So that for a political scientist, what's fascinating is here in an era when they're trying to constrain African-Americans, on one issue, they're the swing vote. And if you can convince the black churches to mobilize, you can actually get temperance in your county. This is not something that white elites want to be happening. Right. Then, what finally brings us this to a head, this is the second point, the Atlanta race riot, this terrible race riot in September 1906. The Atlanta newspapers get... Guys all jimmied up. Some woman had been assaulted by an unknown black assailant, probably liquored up. This is in the newspaper articles if you go back and look at them. And the claim on the sub headline is, what's wrong with our men? Can they no longer protect Mm -hmm. southern white women? There is a horrible race riot. Young men ran through the streets, took black men off trains, out of businesses, beat them up, killed uh, an unknown number. The progressive elites now step in and say, you know, it's not just the black guys who drink, it's the white guys, it's the lower class whites who drink too. The Atlanta race riot pushed everybody over the top and said, we just have to forbid all alcohol in Georgia Georgia goes first and one after another the southern states go dry and they go dry in arguments about race right as Jim Crow goes into place
1: let, let me stop you there because you've just touched on one of the great enigmas in this story of temperance almost everything that the three of us have talked about up till now is a very local story maybe state level at the most Yet, in the early 20th century, we get national prohibition. Explain how we can get from such a historically localistic story to such a powerful use of the national
5: government. That's exactly the right question. Your county is, your county is dry. What's the problem? Why, why do you need to go national? One piece is it was hard to stay dry if there were other states that were wet. So that if yeah. you, Georgia, went dry, for example, it was very hard to stop the guy up on the hill from ordering a keg of whiskey from Ohio <laughs> because interstate commerce is part of the Constitution. But all of that would not have been enough to get us, I don't think, to prohibition if one last thing hadn't fallen into place, World War One. There's a fascinating, if you ever want to do some fascinating reading, look at the graduation addresses in 1917 and 1918 as the college presidents and the speakers look at the boys the, who are going to be the officers in the American army. They all say the same thing. They say these boys are going to be an army hitherto unseen in history. They will not give in to the seductions of the women in the cities of Europe, nor will they give in to drink. They will be the first truly Christian army in history. And as one of the presidents put it, patriotism must mean prohibition. Now the forces of the Wets, who lived in the Northeast, had a huge burden. They had to not only defend drinking and immigrants, they had to say why they were resisting the great Christian army. And it was in war fervor and in the sort of fervor of being the great Christian nation that prohibition goes over the top and actually becomes the law. That's Brown University political scientist
1: Jim Marone. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, Marone will explain what happened after Prohibition became law. We'll be back in a minute.
0: This is Backstory. I'm Peter Runoff, historian of early America. I'm Ed Ayers, the historian of the century that followed. And I'm Brian Ballow. If it didn't happen too long ago, I'm
1: your guy. We're talking today about the history of alcohol in America. When we left off, political
3: scientist Jim Marone was telling Brian and Peter about the temperance movement of the late 19th and early 20th century and how World War I paved the way for all-out prohibition. The 18th Amendment, which banned the sale of alcohol, was ratified in 1919
1: and went into effect a year later. In hindsight, Prohibition kind of looks like a colossal failure. I mean, think about it. All those speakeasies, bootleggers, gangsters, it sure seems like drinking was very much alive and well in the 1920s. But Jim Marone says that at the time, a lot of Americans were 100 percent behind this policy. As a matter of fact, eight years into prohibition, Herbert Hoover ran for president on a dry platform, and he trounced the candidate of the so-called wets, New York Governor Al Smith. Here's Marone again.
5: Al Capone's out there. Crime is out there. Murder is out there. At the same time, you've got a lot of Americans, a majority probably, uh, but certainly a lot of rural Americans, taking great pride in what the federal government is trying to do and seeing it as noble. For the first time, they really felt the touch of federal government as a kind of spiritual mm-hmm. cause. People like to say that the New Deal is the father of big government. That's nonsense.
6: Yeah,
0: yeah, the father yeah. of big government is prohibition. This is the way in that big government becomes legitimate. In the countryside, I think that's really fascinating. That's the lost story in here, isn't it? So what
5: happens to all this? What happens is the Great Depression. Yeah. Hoover goes around in his campaign saying, do you notice something? Do you notice that we're in the greatest period of prosperity in American history? We know that was exaggerating <laughs> a little bit. But it was a great period of prosperity. Now, why? He said, we stopped drinking. That's why we're in such prosperity. Do you know that (laughs) men are more handsome? Have you noticed that American men are more handsome and American women more beautiful? (laughs) It's a great campaign speech, right? We're more prosperous. We're more handsome. Who's going to vote against that? And then the Depression hits. Well, the Depression makes everything associated with the Republicans, associated with Hoover, absolutely poisonous. And there's also an economic argument here. During World War I, starting in 1913, but becoming popular in World War I, we begin to rely on the federal income tax. The income tax can now fund the federal government. What did it replace? What it replaced was tariffs and taxes on alcohol. So all of a sudden, Roosevelt comes into office. He needs that tax on alcohol because the income tax has gone through, through the floor. Uh, And they don't don't have revenues. If you look at the original National Recovery Administration, if you actually read the law, what does it say? It says that as soon as prohibition is repealed, we'll use the tax on alcohol to fund the NRA.
0: But, Jim, taking the long view, we certainly drink a lot less than Americans did during the early republic. And you could say that prohibition initiated a period of concern about public health in the broadest sense of the term. And uh, the changes have been enduring ones.
1: And that the national government remained quite active in those issues from that point on.
5: Well, all those things you just said are absolutely right on. And to add to Brian's last point, one thing that was very interesting during all this was that we had to decide what the Constitution said about the federal government going in there and getting this involved in people's lives. Fourth right. Amendment law, Fourth Amendment says that uh, people must be secure uh, in their personal property and, their, and themselves, uh, that the government cannot right, do search right. and seizure. Um, Fourth Amendment law gets rewritten around prohibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, may you wiretap someone's house? Is that the same thing as breaking in and rifling through their papers? Right. You see a known bootlegger driving back to Detroit from Windsor, Ontario. You're a cop. You turn around, you give chase, you stop him, you rip his seats out, what's there? Of course, cases of booze. Well, was that a legal stop or not? Cars were relatively new. So all the rules and regulations that we now use in our drug wars went into effect during Prohibition. So the echo of Prohibition lives on. Yeah, Yeah, for better or worse...
0: Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Oh, Brian and Peter, lots of fun, and thank you for having me on. And next time, maybe we can talk more about sex. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, Jim.
0: Jim Marone is a professor of political science at Brown University. He's the author of Hellfire Nation, The Politics of Sin in American History. You can find out more about his book at BackstoryRadio.org.
2: The decisive vote of the 36th state against prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others throughout the land. With an eye on December 5th, work is being rushed in distilleries and bottling works. Thousands are being called back to work in plants of allied industries. At least 500,000 new jobs are predicted as a result of repeal. From keg and barrel factories, perhaps the most closely allied line. Immediate benefits from repeal extend into almost every line of business and commerce. However, everyone's not waiting until December 15th. The lid is off in many places with the downfall of Prohibition being celebrated in real old-time hilarity. Yes, and by the renewal of old acquaintances, hotels and nightclubs report a real pre war spirit among those
1: revelers. That was Universal Newsreel reporting the repeal of Prohibition 75 years ago this December.
3: Well, you know, that is really interesting, guys. The, the idea that prohibition was not just this sort of anomaly, uh, just sort of a blip in American history, but really
1: absolutely fundamental to defining a lot that came after. Well, uh, think really about it, Ed. I mean, he's saying that all the things the government did, the FBI, rules about search and seizure, I mean, all this stuff that we live with today uh, is kind of an enduring legacy of uh, prohibition.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because it's, we often use it as an example to say, well, that just shows the limits of yeah. federal power. You no, know, you it's really, just
0: the beginning. Yeah.
3: yeah, you can't legislate morality. Well, actually, it turns out you can. And yeah. Matter of fact,
1: people have been trying to do it ever since. Listeners, we want to know what you think about all this. Was repeal of Prohibition the end of an era, or was it just the beginning? Leave us a comment at BackstoryRadio.org. Now, I think it's time for a phone call. What do you say, guys? Sure, let's do it.
0: We've got Lauren on the line. She's calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, uh, Lauren, this is a particularly interesting topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you come to an interest in alcohol?
7: (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, what I wanted to um, ask you about is today we think about kind of controlling the morality of people mm-hmm. as a very conservative type of movement, and yet temperance was one of many progressive reforms. Oh, that's a terrific yeah. point. That, oh, that's um, a great point. You know, were kind of considered liberal at that time.
1: Yeah, why mm-hmm. do you think it was considered progressive?
7: Well, because they were trying to improve people's lives. And exactly. I guess um, what was considered conservative was things that were more letting things take their course. But I, I don't know, what do you guys think?
1: yeah no, I think that's exactly it. People felt that liquor ruined people's lives. It did ruin not only the lives of the men who fell under its sway, but the reformers were even more concerned with the women and children who suffered as a result of it. Uh, wages lost uh spouses abused uh, to use today's language uh it did destroy. A lot of families. And then there was a great concern about destroying political independence. Votes were bought with alcohol. It was seen as corrupting American virtue and independence. I I think you make a great point. These were all progressive causes. The
3: point I would make, though, is that it's a a really partisan movement. And talking about being progressive, it's Republican. And it does have a strong overlay of nativism and of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. So it is a particular kind and maybe you know the most widespread of all progressive reforms. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that was you know embraced with the same bipartisan support, I don't think. It would, I think it would have been identified as a kind of, if we think of a restricted progressivism as opposed to uh, liberating progressivism.
0: Uh, but Ed, and so you th- might say, Ed, uh, that temperance reform prohibition were efforts to reshape American society in the absence of powerful social institutions, safety nets, welfare, and so forth, so that uh, what we call modern liberalism is maybe laissez-faire with respect to behavior, but we have all kinds of institutions that guarantee social stability and public health and so forth. So there may be a continuity between the progressivism of these uh, Yankee reformers, and that's what they were basically, and uh, the modern uh, welfare reformers.
1: Well, and of course the real continuity, and Ed put his finger on it by talking about the 19th century partisan divide, but the, the strongest continuity is that of a willingness to turn to the state to eventually the national government in order to intervene in people's uh, lives, something that ironically today, Lauren, uh, has been taken up by the conservatives. I want to ask my fellow guys, and you too, Lauren, if you'd like to participate, a quiz. Okay. So the
3: question is, where did ABC stores come from and when?
7: I'm not sure what an ABC store is. <laughs> well, there you go. Let's take the easy way out. That,
1: that's what we call alcohol beverage control. Is control. that in Virginia? Liquor, hard liquor, is only sold in state-run ah. stores.
7: Yes, I was raised in Arizona, and liquor is in just normal stores there. But yeah. here in Michigan, it's the same way. It's only yeah. in certain—they call them party stores, which I think is very funny.
1: Party stores—that
7: seems,
1: <laughs> seems to wow. give a bad idea. I
3: always—I
7: always, walk in there and I'm expecting balloons and party hats <laughs> because that's what a party <laughs> yeah. store is in Arizona.
1: You know that's, that's funny, but it's not answering my question. No, Ed, no. I, I, I would—if I had oh, a guess, come on. I would—I would guess during the progressive era, actually, as. There was increased pressure for temperance and, uh, alcohol was confined to greater state control without being eliminated.
3: Well, you know, that's almost right, Brian. How far off am I? It actually came up in South Carolina in the 1890s.
4: Oh, well, it's so um, far
3: off. Well, it is pretty close in time, but the point being, uh, Benjamin Tillman, sort of a great demagogue. Oh, the pitchfork guy. Uh, pitchfork yeah. Ben Tillman, a one-eyed populist, racist <laughs> reformer in South okay, Carolina. Don't, don't, don't. Would you think of him as a progressive, Brian? <laughs> no. Well, his idea was really you know, to regulate. He didn't think you could get rid of alcohol consumption. Yeah. But so the state, this is kind of like a precursor to the lottery today, right? The state yeah. might as well but regulate it and make, make some money on it. Make ah, money revenue, it. Revenue. Yeah. revenue. Yeah.
1: No, that's very interesting because, of course, when we got national prohibition, Uh, who administered it? Who was responsible? It was the treasury. And the reason it was treasury rather than justice, which was a more logical choice, was those, those treasury people, they knew all about alcohol because they'd been collecting taxes on it for decades. That's great. So Ed, Ed really makes, Ed makes a terrific point. Awesome. But and I don't think running. I'm that wrong. I'm going to stick by my
0: guns. 1890. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll work this on our own time. Uh, but thanks for calling. We really enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Go to the party
1: store, all right? Celebrate being on Backstory. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. You know, guys, what this all points to is that the business of sin isn't just a boon for gangsters, it's big business for the government, too.
0: And And, Brian, it's been big from the beginning. Because the first time the new federal government tries to lay taxes, internal taxes, direct taxes, the excises, it's on whiskey, leading to a rebellion in Western Pennsylvania. Because that'd be the whiskey rebellion, those, wouldn't it? Yeah, whiskey rebellion. Those freedom loving farmers didn't want their distilleries taxed. Now, they couldn't get their wheat to market because transportation is so expensive. So they distill it all, and the government wants to take. And the result was the second coming of the American Revolution, because, of course, the American Revolution had been about taxes, including a tax on tea. And in 1794 is when Washington sent Hamilton out with the troops to western Pennsylvania to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion and to enforce order. So it's those things that we enjoy a lot, whether it's tea or whiskey, government's going to take advantage of those appetites. And you can bet that government's going to be taxing sinful items throughout American history.
1: While telling it, us it's no good for us.
0: Absolutely. But if you do bet on that, we'll tax you. <laughs> you got it.
1: Yeah, so there's this long history of this tension, right, between the moral well-being of society and the financial needs of the government. I mean, that's a contradiction that certainly wasn't lost on the pro-temperance crowd uh, in the years after Prohibition's repeal,
2: Congress has passed a law putting $5 a, a barrel tax on beer. That means. A
1: That's Billy Sunday, one of the most famous evangelists of the early 20th century. Listen to him rail against the new taxes that Congress imposed in the aftermath of repeal.
2: They have put $2 a tax on whiskey and they expect to realize $300 million. It doesn't take a lawyer to figure out that if you do that, you take that much money out of the legitimate channels of trade, you spend that much less for food and clothes and boots and shoes and education and automobiles. Oh, America didn't need repeal. She needed repentance. She didn't need wrong. She needed righteousness. We don't need more grog. We need more God.
3: We don't need more grog. We need God. Well, in the long run, it looks like the forces of Grog may have won out. At least that's the way it seemed to Catherine Moore, one of our producers, after her recent trip to Culpeper, Virginia. She was visiting Chuck Miller, a man who distills corn whiskey using the same recipe and the same copper kettle that his grandfather used back in the 1920s. The only difference is that Chuck has the government's blessing. He pays for the privilege and taxes, whereas Grandpa... Did it all under the table.
7: Where, where was your grandpa um, doing his thing?
2: Well, he was out of Fredericksburg, where he was born. He had a little farm on the other side of town there. Um, he raised eleven kids and never had a job. <laughs> he used to keep had a big old white house, you know, up on a hill, and he used to store what whiskey he did store, you know, was stored down in the cellar. And the only access to it was uh, through the floor in the living room. And Grandma had a, one of those uh, big rocking chairs with a skirt on it, you know. And every time they'd get raided, because they knew he had it, but they could never knew he was doing it, but they could never catch him, you know. She'd sit on that rocking chair on the trap door there and crochet. And they'd tear that place up. And they couldn't find anything. They did that several times. And she'd sit there the whole time they were tearing the house up and just crocheting rock. <laughs> yeah. I really wasn't interested in it. So I went away, you know, uh, did my own thing for a while, but then when I got this farm and, you know, bills are high and trying to make a living, farming's tough, you know. So I uh, got thinking about what he did and I said, going. he made a lot of money, you know. Huh? But I didn't want to be illegal, so I uh, called the Bureau of Alcohol Tobacco Farms and told them what I wanted to do and they said, Sure, you can do it, but you've got to fill out all this paperwork. You, know. you have to tell them everything. Then they send an inspector by, and he checks out uh, the amount of corn you use, the amount of whiskey you're making, uh, the amount of bottles you had come in, how many bottles went out. You know, I mean, they got it all. They're allowed to break like 2% or something. You know, they got, They've got it all figured out. They've been doing this a while. Yeah. <laughs> and also, they also uh, check the quality of the product you make. They uh, come in, take samples, and they send them off to their lab. We got really good well water here to make whiskey, you know, it's a limestone water, and you need that to make a good match, but you can't cut whiskey with limestone water because uh, the minerals would come out and then the whiskey would be cloudy and then you couldn't pass a government test, see. So to clean up the water to cut the whiskey, we got to heat it, sand filter it, water softener, carbon filter, pre-filter, reverse osmosis filter, and I got a positive and a negative ion filter, .02 micron filter, and a UV light. <laughs> You could probably guess Grandpa did not have any of that. I don't think he liked uh, modern rules and regs, you know. I don't think he even cut it. He was one of them guys that liked working there in the woods <laughs> by the creek. <laughs> but that Virginia whiskey, you see that copper kettle, got to come back here and age for two years.
3: That's Chuck Miller, a proprietor of Virginia Lightning Whiskey in Culpeper, Virginia.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, Peter, I now wonder about why you get in that rocking chair every time the (laughs) police drive by. Well, it's time for another quick break. When we get back, we'll hear from a therapist at a 12-step recovery program turns out he doesn't care much for temperance either
0: we'll also take more of your calls drop us a line the number is 888-257-8851 more backstory coming up in a minute my daddy makes whiskey my granddaddy did too we ain't paid
2: no whiskey tax since 1792 Production
3: support for Backstory is provided by Caroline Feeney, Marcus and Carol Weinstein, J.M. Weinberg, Christian David Crow, Claire Gargalli and David Carley,
1: and an anonymous donor. So many people say they cut whiskey out Just to have a little take of wine they get drunk every once in a while They must have been drinking moonshine And the deacon don't like it I don't either Deacon don't like it I don't either
2: Deacon don't like it I don't either like It's a sin and a shame Lots of people get drunk once in a while Just to speak this sober mind When they get caught doing crazy things They put the blame on old moonshine and the
0: deacon don't like
6: it. I don't either. The deacon don't like it. I don't either. Deacon don't like it. I don't either. It's a sin. Ain't Hey, tell me yellow corn whiskey. It's really the very best kind.
0: This is Backstory. I am Peter Ronoff. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Bellow.
1: Each week on the show, we zero in on a topic in the news. And we offer up some historical context. This week, it's all about alcohol and its consequences, drunkenness, wastedness. Call it what you will. Gone. Smashed. Blitzed. Blasted. Soused.
4: Sloshed. Plastered.
1: Buzzed. Schnuckered is one. Fustigated.
7: Spificated.
0: Three sheets to the wind.
7: Three sheets to the wind. Three sheets to the wind.
0: Absolutely soused. Ah, alcohol, how it inspires language, how it inspires long lists of ways to refer to its own neurological effects. We all have our own favorite terms for inebriation, but it's probably safe to say that nobody has as many of them as Benjamin Franklin. Addled, afflicted, as good-conditioned as a puppy, bewitched, been at Barbados, cherry-married... Head. In 1736, Franklin published the Drinker's day. Dictionary, a kind of single-subject thesaurus with more than 200 variations on the theme. He's fishy, fuddled, sore-footed. He's eat the coconut, got a brass eye, got on his little hat, in the suds, loose in the hilts, like a rat in trouble. Owes no man a farthing. He sees two moons, tanned, tongue-tied, been too free with Sir John Strawberry. He makes Virginia
5: fence. He's very weary. Now that's an impressive list,
3: but it's certainly not complete. Tell us what you'd add to a drinker's dictionary. Visit backstoryradio.org and click Join the Discussion.
0: Hey, another call all the way from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we've got Patty on the line. Patty. Yes, sir. So, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're talking about alcohol.
4: Well, it's a favorite topic of the Irish. And that, that I am of Irish extraction. That
0: sounds Irish, doesn't it, Patty?
4: With two Ds. Yeah. yeah. I am fourth generation Irish in America. Uh huh. But I married a man of Irish extraction. And I was interested to see, since he's from the East Coast, the persistence of. of Alcohol in Irish American culture, uh-huh. of course it's famous in Irish culture, right. but um, it's part of Irish American culture as well. Yeah. And I wonder how much that had to do with the rejection of immigrants in the 19th century when the, you know, the teetotal mm-hmm. programs were just getting started and then in come all these immigrants. Right. Who, have drink as part of their culture, not just an occupation. Indeed, it was deeply woven into the literature, the music, Mm -hmm. the jokes.
0: Yeah, so, uh, Patty, you're suggesting in a way that Irish people in America have uh, used alcohol as a form of cultural expression, sort of snubbing their noses at those waspy Yankees, those disapproving teetotaler types.
4: Yeah, they were pretty unashamedly drinkers.
0: But there's also the phenomenon of the lace curtain Irish, as they're called, right. them, that is the very re, hyper respectable Irish out Yankee, the Yankee in terms right. of their sobriety and stuff. So That's forth.
4: my husband's family.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> boring. <laughs> but alcoholism does run along with the the charm and the talk. And you
0: have conflicted feelings about it, is what you're saying right now. That is, it's been a problem for Irish people.
4: It's known as the Irish curse, and in my family, in my husband's family, in my in-laws' families, every family has at least one alcoholic. Everybody's aware of it. My parents, actually, they were not alcoholic and they never had a drinking problem, but there had been alcoholics in both sides of their families. Right. So they raised us with the A.A. Blue Book. I mean, they brought it in the house when I was 10 and no they explained kidding. to us, et cetera. But it's still part of the culture.
1: But, you know, Patty, I, I want to comment on something that is reflected in your call itself, which is because your name is Patty and because you're an Irish-American, you can talk very openly about certain things that in the mouths of others would be seen as stereotypes. And I think there's a, a bit of an answer to your question in this observation, which is whether or not the Irish drink more or not, the Irish themselves are able to talk about this openly in ways that certainly would give the impression that Irish drink more, whether you happen to be right or not. That's true.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's part of the folklore, you might say, and certainly stereotypes. And uh, when Irish people talk about them, of course, they're not malign stereotypes. We've come a long way from those caricatures of the 19th century. Thankfully, too. Yes, indeed. And it's been great talking to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Patty. Thanks. For Thanks. Bye. Let's take another call. We've got Joy on the line from Albany, New York. Joy, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. What's on your mind?
6: I'd like to talk a little bit about the dichotomy between how we expect our teams to behave mm. in terms of their alcohol consumption right. and what we allow for ourselves and right. whether or not it's really fair to expect more of our teams than the behavior we actually model for them.
0: Whoa, that's a heavy question. So may, gonna... may
1: I ask how old you are, Joy?
0: I'm 24. Yeah, I'm um, sorry we've got a uh, yeah, minimum age here Yeah, in you're in practically guys. a teenager as far as we're <laughs> concerned. So uh, you're talking about double standards.
6: Yes, uh, I think that we accept our teens to be moderate alcohol consumers and not drink and drive. Yeah. Um, and we as adults don't necessarily model that behavior. And when an adult does get caught drinking and driving, there's no guarantee that there will be an actual punishment.
3: And it's what's interesting is how it's tied in right now. I'm a university president too. We've been wrestling with this. Should, should the drinking age be reduced to 18, uh, so that it can be better, frankly, managed by those of us who have responsibility for large
0: numbers of these young people. Guys, let's um, do some history here. This is the backstory, right? I mean, yeah, okay. I know that's threatening, but, uh, what about drinking ages through history? And the whole notion of Joy's question is about, how we manage? When do adults begin worrying about teenagers acting out and and link it to alcohol consumption?
6: Like my understanding is that youth alcohol use really wasn't an issue um, until the twentieth century and really actually the post World World War II period. Yeah. Yeah. That it just first of all in terms of the nineteenth century children and teens were seen as the victims of parental alcohol abuse, particularly paternal alcohol abuse. Good point,
0: good point. And
1: and why it's a 20th century issue, number one, I think, is the car and the combination of drinking and driving and the inherent necessity of state regulation, Uh, certainly of cars, and the state had regulated alcohol for a long time, but not necessarily in regard to kids. Mm -hmm. Secondly, income, you know, money in your pocket. And it's after World War II, and especially the 1960s, that large corporations start targeting kids for major marketing campaigns. And they do that because for the first time, kids, middle-class kids, begin to have a lot of spare change. They can get their hands on this alcohol pretty easily. Right. And in some ways, the concept
3: of uh, the problem of teenage drinking begins when we have teenagers, which is also a 20th century invention. You know, before that, just a gradation between children and adults. And uh, when they became a distinct category, sharply defined, then it looked like a problem to be solved.
0: Yeah. You know, it all gets tied up in questions of consent. That is, when can teenagers be considered responsible adults and take responsibility for their behavior? And I think there's a tremendous discrepancy now between arriving at an age in which you're capable of driving cars and going to parties and drinking a lot and being responsible because we've protracted adolescence well into the 20s, if not the 30s for yeah. our kids.
1: You know, maybe age is not the right way to do this. Uh, there's certainly lots of ways to predict who is going to be a responsible drinker. Uh, and we now have lots of ways to accumulate. No, not DNA testing. We, the insurance companies know all of this. They know about differences between men and women. They know about differences between people based on their grade point average. Those might Mm, end up being, those might end up being much better predictors than age. But Peter, I think you really put your finger on it. Age seems neutral. We're mm-hmm. not, yeah, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. Not, not discriminating. we're not picking on, you know, male athletes with GPAs below 2.0, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, to address Joy's very real issue, you know, to discriminate against the responsible 20-year-old uh, may not make sense in this day and age.
0: Okay, Joy. Well, we wish you, Joy.
6: It's <laughs> to you. Talking so much. Much.
0: Great. Thanks for yeah. calling. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. bye-bye. bye Bye-bye. <laughs>
1: Well, guys, we've come full circle. We started the show with the drinking age, and here we are again. But as a 20th century guy, I have to point out that there's still an important chapter in the history of alcohol use that we have not mentioned, and that's Alcoholics Anonymous. AA was started in 1935 by Bill Wilson, a recovering alcoholic. Uh, Wilson embraced what at the time was a new idea. That idea was that alcoholism wasn't a moral failing. It was a disease. But Wilson also believed that healing involved a spiritual undertaking and came up with the famous 12 Steps to Recovery. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with a therapist at one of the country's preeminent 12-step programs, the Hazelden Center in Minnesota. His name is Fred Holmquist, and I asked him what he thought about the temperance and prohibition efforts of the past. The
8: idea of temperance doesn't work for alcoholics or addicts because if it was just a matter of signing an oath and saying no, and getting off of this stuff, you know, detoxes would crank out winners. Right. And detoxes don't crank out winners because when people put mood-altering substances in their systems, one of the symptoms of addiction is they're not able to predict when they're going to stop once they start. And then the other as critical symptom is that once they stop, they're not able to stay stopped, even though they couldn't have made a more sincere commitment. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quitting's easy. I've done it thousands of times.
1: Yeah. Now we don't blink an, an eyelid at the term illness for alcoholism today, but uh, historically, uh, that's something that's changed quite a bit, hasn't it? The perception that this is an illness—it has changed quite a bit. But
8: the idea of addiction being an illness um, certainly isn't. Uh, wasn't started in the 20th century. Many people throughout history, going way back, have considered and seen uh, addictive processes as disease processes. Um, now, that the the program of action there really there's the community of the people who share in a common peril and also who share in a common solution. The solution, the common solution, is defined by the 12 steps and AA's 12 steps. And I quote are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole.
1: Fred, you've mentioned the word spiritual. And in my historical understanding of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program, spirituality is a very important part of it. It was at the beginning. Uh, is that still the case? And can you explain a little bit What this spirit, what you mean by the spiritual component or spirituality? I think the
8: presence of, of, uh, the word, you know, spiritual in terms of the 12 steps has a lot to do with the wisdom of the 12 steps that essentially helps people understand that one of the reasons this illness is so devastating is that it engages them at all three levels of human existence, physically, mentally, and spiritually. The, Physical component is referred to as the uh, physical allergy. The mental component is referred to as the mental obsession. And the spiritual component has basically to do with a basic theological premise that there's something beyond humanness and thought in each human being. And the text Alcoholics Anonymous' version of that says... Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, and I you know I would say that 's represented in other wisdom faith traditions as soul um, mm-hmm. and but something whole,
1: something outside of oneself
8: actually no uh, actually something absolutely already inside oneself I got it in essence, the text Alcoholics Anonymous lets people know that there is a deeper element of goodness and truth inside them already always has been always will be and that in terms of the spiritual solution for addiction that's the only place they're going to find it.
1: Fred Holmquist is director of the Lodge program at Hazleton Treatment Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Well, guys, uh, since all three of us are a bit addicted to history, um, I want to turn to you for the great historical irony here, right? I mean, it's not until after World War II that we begin treating alcoholism as a disease. And it's also after World War II that this great medical establishment grows. We do all kinds of heroic surgery, and now we live in an era of all these wonder drugs. But I think Fred's right in that the most effective treatment of addiction uh, and specifically alcoholism turns on spirituality. Um, So what does that say about the different kinds of directions we're moving in, uh, in the second half of the 20th century?
0: Yeah. I think we're really getting at the notion that the alcoholic is always an alcoholic. There's no cured alcoholic and therefore it's not disease in the conventional sense of something you get over. It's something that's always with you and, the irony, it seems to me, is that you have to totally embrace the identity of an alcoholic in order to deal with alcoholism.
3: You know what that sounds like to me?
0: What? what original that? sin. Puritans. You got it. Yeah, that and, you, and that, that's a nice point, Ed.
1: But do we today blame people? I mean, sin entails a certain oh, degree of... Original well, sin. Yeah, I think you, we
0: do, absolutely. You blame somebody who will not take the 12 steps. In other words, who will not embrace this new identity, or this total alcoholic identity, in order to transcend it. I think that's precisely, as Ed is saying, the notion of original sin and conversion.
3: Yeah, you've got to renounce your sin. I mean, it's not your fault that you are a sinner, because we all are. It's not your fault you're an alcoholic. And
0: and Ed, when you renounce sin, it doesn't mean you stop being a sinner. There's no idea of perfection here. We are radically imperfect. Call it what you will, that sounds like original sin to me. So, Peter, are you saying that we're really no farther along
1: than where we started in terms of alcoholism being a sin? I know the name changes. Well, I think
0: uh, the temperance movement originally preaches the spirit of moderation and does suggest that you can drink a little bit and that you've got to live a healthy lifestyle. In many ways, most of us are modern temperance people who believe that we have it in our control to regulate our alcohol intake. But there's always been a strong pull from evangelical Christianity toward the stark recognition that we have no control over our appetites, that is, that we are prone to addiction. And it seems to me that in one way or another, whenever we have recognized our proneness to addiction, we are rephrasing or reframing the idea of original sin, and that's right at the heart of the 12-step program.
3: Yeah there's no question that you know the alcoholics anonymous and and a lot of these movements have made remarkable differences for individuals and it's been a blessing in that way i guess what we're talking about is the way these big currents of impulses sweep through american history and it's not really about individual motivation or improvement but rather about a desire for sort of purging the culture of these addictive possibilities right, and, right. and so th- that's what I, I believe, Brian. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, that certainly helps me. Uh And it's a lucky thing, too, because that's all the time we have for today. Remember, we always want to keep the conversation going online. Visit us at BackstoryRadio.org and leave a comment with your thoughts on today's program.
0: We'll be back next week for more Rooting Around in the American Past.
1: Backstory is produced by Tony Field, Rachel Quimby, and Catherine Moore.
0: Jamal Milner
1: makes
3: the show. Gabby Alter composed our theme. Lydia Wilson provides administrative support.
1: And Backstory's executive producer is Andrew Windham. Major production support for backstories provided by the David A. Harrison Fund for the President's Initiatives at the University of Virginia, the Perry Foundation Incorporated, and Carrie Brown Epstein and the W.L. Lyons Brown Jr. Charitable Foundation.
4: Peter Onuf is the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ryan Ballow is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Virginia and UVA's Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayer is his president and professor of history at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for VFH Radio at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.